So, Mark. Yes. One day, you are going to have to shadow dance with a ghost. That's a very specific prediction. I think it happens to all of us. Okay. At some point, you are going to be dancing alone in your home, and what you may not realize is a ghost of someone you once knew will be dancing right along with you. Okay. So what I want to know is, when you are doing this ghostly dance, to what song will you be dancing? Well, based off of my past experience of, of songs I dance to alone in my room, starting from a young age, One Two Step by Sierra is probably a very likely song that I would choose for that. Now I'm imagining like, oh yes, the songs I danced to in childhood. So it's like somebody ghost dancing to the chicken dance. Yeah, I mean, that's when you truly, I feel, hit your peak. Like, I'm doing this. I'm dancing. Nothing's holding me back. But I also thought about Liability by Lord because it basically is about this, but in a really depressing way, which this movie also kind of leans into. Kind of. I don't think I'll describe this movie as anything without using kind of in front of it. I think it's necessary. What would you choose? I had a hard time coming up with stuff. So in this movie, the song that the ghost dance happens to is Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, which is originally from a musical, a 1933 musical by Jerome Kern and Otto Harbach called Roberta. And so I was trying to think of songs from musicals that would work. So I was thinking like, you know, maybe we're really high energy. So me and the ghost are going clang, 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 goes the trolley. (laughs) So that was an option. Or, you know, maybe it is something a little bit more solemn, like My Friends from Sweeney Todd. That would be very depressing for the ghost to be involved in. I feel like that song is mostly about solitude. (laughs) And also, like, being pretty messed up. Yeah. I guess it all depends on the ghost, too. That's true. That's a very good point. Like, if you're asking me what am I most likely to be, like, singing to myself... Alone, it's like Civil War songs. What do you want from me? Yeah, I was actually going to say, I mean, if you're dancing with the ghost of George Washington, you're probably going to want to choose something like Baroque music or Yankee Doodle Dandy. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. For me, it's probably like Battle Cry of Freedom or something, and the ghost can roll with it or leave. Yeah, I mean, they do have much more choice in that matter than we do. They're not held back by walls, man. I don't know what that was. That was that, that was a choice. I, I think you're in a weird mood. <laughs> I am. This movie really threw me off. What a way to start the day. <laughs> I, I started watching it at like 8.30 this morning, too. It was just like how I started my day, and I've been a little off because I just don't know what was happening. I think it's an interesting movie, but it's a weird movie. It's not a movie that is good or bad. It is just a movie that is there and exists. Yeah. We I think we need to start it. talking about it. Yeah. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is a podcast dedicated to investigating the most important, pressing, urgent issues facing our world. Specifically, does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And has Steven Spielberg ever experienced love? I mean, are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or if it's a one-scene flirtation or if it's like a weird kind of Cyrano thing with a dead guy involved. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, as Mark alluded to, we are looking at Steven Spielberg's only romantic drama, the 1989 firefighter airplane ghost romance, always, starring Richard Dreyfuss, Holly Hunter, and John Goodman. 
I watched this and my first thought was just, I will never date Steven Spielberg. And I know there are many reasons for that, but also it's like the depiction of a relationship in this, there's something just ineffably off about it. And I can't explain what it is, but the whole time, even when I was invested and I was invested and I felt for these characters, but I was still just like, what? Question mark? About it a is lot strange. Of it. And this is like kind of a strange genre for him. It's the only time he does a straight up romance. And there is an extent to which like you think through Spielberg movies and the best romance in any of them is probably Indy and Marion in Raiders. Ooh. Yikes. Like really. But even then like that one besides the like yikesiness that didn't make its way into the actual movie is one that is more about like sort of screwball two people sparring with each other qualities. Whereas in something like this, you get a sense that Pete and Dory care about each other, but there's not a real air of romance to it. There always seems to be some kind of remove to it. Yeah, they start out, and it's impossible to tell where in the relationship they are at the beginning, because it seems like a well-established relationship, but at the same time, he's never said, I love you to her. And then when he dies, he only cares about, like, he's a He's so into her, and she's so upset, and he never said, I love you, so I'm just like, how long were they together? It seems like a long time. There's the vague story that he saw her in a bar and was like, I choose you or something, but it was still so weird. Yeah, and you think about that scene where they are at, I think it's her place at night, the night that they talk about whether he should quit being a firefighter, and it's not like a sexy thing, it like feels like two people like having a sleepover. But at the same time, when they were being, like, romantic, or I guess it's barely even romance, it's more just, like, the actual meat of a relationship, the depth of it, I was very affected. Sure. I mean, I think the the most capital R romantic moment in the movie is either the ghost dance sequence or when she bikes onto the runway and climbs his plane to tell him she loves him before he goes on that last mission. But also when he's like, oh, you like the dress? And she says, it's not the dress. It's the way you see me. That's a beautiful line. Like, you get a lot of emotion out of it. And in that brief second, you're like on board. And then just she starts dancing with every man in the room. Every man in this bizarre, like, comedy sequence. Like, it's like a vaudeville show. (laughs) I don't know what's happening. And it's just the choice to make it. The firefighter movie. So it's based off of a World War II movie I saw. And you get that vibe because they're in an USO bar on the European front, I'd guess. And they even say like, oh, this is like we're in World War II. But I don't understand like what this place is for the firefighters. I think it's just like a mess hall, like where they hang out and stuff. But yes, this is based on a 1943 movie called A Guy Called Joe. And the movie is kind of obsessed with that iconography a lot of the planes used in the movie are world war ii planes the premise in the movie being like these are old planes that these guys can get cheap but also there are conversations about like how they are not world war ii pilots like the scene where john goodman al tells pete wait a minute when people in the war did these daring things they were doing it to save people's lives when you do them you're mostly being stupid right great talking to and so it's a it's a movie that is aware that it is not a war movie and seems kind of frustrated with that. I mean, it does point out the stupidity of men trying to just show off for no reason, which I did appreciate. The taking of unnecessary risks in this movie is definitely something that is, it always works, not always, it works out in the end, but it's not exactly applauded. But, you know, he does eventually agree to 
move and take the job. He does agree to give up making these dumb decisions and take the job teaching out in Colorado when Dorinda asked him to, like, for his girlfriend? Which was a really nice scene. And it was like, oh, yes, there is more to life than just being the lone man trying to solve the problem. And then, unfortunately, his plane fully explodes. <laughs> In a truly unbelievable In sequence. a truly unbelievable sequence. But it was definitely just, you know, the being the one man saving the day mentality is not exactly applauded, which I appreciated. No, not at all. So I have been watching my way through Spielberg's movies in release order. So I was around the point of always, which is why I said, hey, we should do this for the podcast. And I've also been reading Molly Haskell's book on Spielberg's life as I go through it. And it's interesting to see the point where we hit always. It's right between Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade and Hook, which form this kind of strange little trilogy about figuring out whether and how to let go of the past. Okay, yeah. Because Last Crusade has this whole thing about, like, Indy's relationship with his father, but also a lot of the talk around the Holy Grail once they get to the temple is about choosing that you don't need all of this stuff, that you can go and live a full life separate from Trinkets in the Desert. And then in Hook, of course, there's the different issue of Peter Pan has forgotten his past. And I, I think it's interesting that this fits in in that same time frame. It's also worth noting, this movie is being made as Steven Spielberg is getting a divorce. Interesting. Right? Yeah. This movie was just, I kept going back and forth and there would be moments where I cared so much about the characters, but only for a brief amount of time. So I guess it's like him processing his love and its end or something came through, but only in brief snippets is almost the vibe I got. I kind of have a similar vibe. The thing about watching like what is clearly weaker Spielberg movies is there's an extent to which like there is a floor on his movies that there is going to be a technical craft that's always there even when the story isn't kind of working. Like, I have never seen a movie make fire look so scary. Right. And that's in part, they shot footage of the 1988 Yellowstone fires, which are the largest fires in the history of Yellowstone National Park. They had to bring in the military to help fight them. But there are even, like, sequences with the firefighters running through the fire that look a lot like like Saving Private Ryan, the explosion of Pete's plane, or even, like, his plane on the tarmac him in the refrigerator like he's able to create these really powerful images or like the scene where the bus driver appears behind that was such a good uh, scene johnson yeah so there's all of this technical proficiency that's pretty engaging but it's hard to connect to the romance of it because spielberg doesn't seem to quite have this sense of tension really that drives this kind of romantic movie we are largely given a sense of exactly here's where these people are and there seems like they're gonna stay there right it felt like the movie didn't know if it was a firefighting in airplanes movie or a romance movie and i don't think it walked the line that well no and the firefighting stuff is definitely much better right and if steven spielberg had just made a movie about firefighters fighting fires in planes that would be probably pretty cool if he wasn't focusing as much on this element of the story. Yeah. And of course, this is one of multiple plane-focused movies he made. Empire of the Sun is about a kid who's obsessed with planes. A lot of the films he made in high school were about planes. There's a lot of airplane action in 1941. So this is like kind of a theme. He and Miyazaki need to get together and just talk planes. (laughs) Really? He actually also said that the original movie, A Guy Called Joe, was one of the only movies he saw as a child that made him cry along with Bambi, 
Like, he was really into a guy called Joe. Apparently, he and Richard Dreyfus were both big fans and would, like, trade quotes from it on the set of Jaws. Huh. But also, I, I planned to watch it, and then I ran out of time because I had to watch Dr. Doolittle, which is a long-ass movie. Oh, boy. Get ready for next week, folks. But... The original one stars Spencer Tracy and Irene Dunn and Van Johnson. And I do kind of think that Pete Sandage, the Richard Dreyfus role, is a great Spencer Tracy role. Yeah, I can see that. Because I think that Tracy is a guy who's able to harness that tension of like wanting to be this sort of square-jawed good guy, but also having a kind of selfish energy sometimes that really is what Pete's all about. Whereas with Dreyfus, it feels more petty. It does. When he's dead and, you know, trying to ruin their relationship. I didn't really support him ever. The whole time I was just like, you can't hold on to her. You are dead. Please let her move on. And that's where, too, the fact that their relationship was so difficult to define when he was alive makes it harder for us to feel the way that he is torn seeing her in death. Like, it'd be one thing if we had been set up more clearly to see how much he cared about her and that then in death it is hard for him to see her. Instead, it feels like he's carrying on a joke with himself from earlier when he's like, oh yeah, you'll never get over me. It still feels like he's joking when he's messing with her from the afterlife. Right. I was never too in love with him. The whole time I was kind of just hoping that she and Ted would have a good life. Yeah. And I'm capable of being in love with Richard Dreyfuss because I love him in Jaws and I love him in American Graffiti. Yeah, it's just in this. He was not... I don't understand the relationship enough, I think. Because I'm still so thrown by the fact that he could never say I love you without joking or hiding it or something in life. So it's just like, how serious is this relationship? He's not willing to commit it all to the relationship. And it feels like Spielberg isn't willing to commit it all to telling us about the relationship. Yeah, I agree. Uh. So this movie opened on December 22nd, 1989. It's actually the same year as Last Crusade. Last Crusade opened in the spring. This opened at Christmas. It opened in fifth place with $3.7 million in its first weekend, sitting behind Christmas Vacation, Tango and Cash, The War of the Roses, and Back to the Future Part 2, sequel to a movie that will be the subject of a future two-hour episode. And it was just ahead of The Little Mermaid and Steel Magnolias. I will say the interesting thing about its box office is that it went up in its second weekend, it went from $3.7 million in its first weekend to $7.1 in the next. Of course, that is the weekend after Christmas, just before New Year's, so a lot of people are off work and more likely to go to the movies. It wound up making $41 million at the domestic box office, I think 74 internationally. What did the critics think of this movie? It was kind of a shrug. A lot of people were like, it's not dreadful, but it's not amazing. They generally agreed with a lot of our assessment, saying it's not as romantic as it needs to be. Yay for Spielberg that he really likes the first movie, but this does not seem like a great addition to the canon. Right. Holly Hunter is doing a good job, though. Yeah, she is. And this is still relatively early in her career. This is only two years after Raising Arizona and Broadcast News. Right. She has a great Holly Hunter crying scene, because I think those are in her rider. She has to cry at least once in every movie. But is it ever better than Raising Arizona? No. She does it so well, though. Also, it was fun to see her in planes because I just kept thinking about The Incredibles. So was I. (laughs) I also want you to know that I spent a good chunk of watching this movie trying to work out a joke invoking the movie Planes, Fire, and Rescue, which I, of course, have not seen. And so I didn't have enough material to try to put something together. I feel terribly for you. 
it is, to my knowledge, the only other firefighting plane movie. We've yet to address the fact that Audrey Hepburn is in this movie. In her final screen appearance. In a role originally slated for Sean Connery until scheduling didn't work out. What a dramatic jump. <laughs> yup. I was so confused, too. I was just like, why is she cutting his hair? So Audrey Hepburn plays Hap, like an angel or spiritual being who gives the dead Pete instructions on what he needs to do as a dead person, which I assume we'll get into later. So she is just wearing all white. She dressed herself. Those are Audrey Hepburn's clothes. Again, that's very unsurprising. Right. This white sweater and white pants. Because she's on this like little island of green in the middle of a burned out forest, she had to be carried on a stretcher over there so that her clothes wouldn't get dirty. <laughs> That's so funny. So just, you know, four people had to carry Audrey Hepburn in her white clothes. I mean, if anyone deserves to just be carried around in like a palanquin, it's probably her. Sure. I could easily imagine her just sitting in a sedan chair being carried around by four attractive men. It's very easy to imagine. But yeah, it was originally set up to be Sean Connery, who of course was also in Last Crusade, but couldn't make it work. I knew she had died around then, but it was actually a bit later than I realized. Yeah, it's like two or three years later? Yeah, four. Because she died in 93. Okay. I thought she died in like 1990. She did donate her salary for this movie to UNICEF, so that's a nice thing. Oh, she was really big, like big donor to UNICEF and time. She's cool. She was also a noble woman. I must have known that, but I had definitely forgotten Like that. her mom, I think, was a baroness or something insane. A thing that All still right. happens. Every time I'm surprised when I find out that people are still, like, nobles. I live in a country with a nobility, and every time I have a reminder that that still exists, I'm like, what? No. What? You're still just, it's like, very strange. a duke? Anyway, sorry. No, I think it's worth reminding ourselves. Yeah, down with the monarchy and whatnot. So, anyway, do we want to get into the romance of this movie? I think I think we should. I think we'll cover everything of note. Yeah, and, and even if we wouldn't, we can just say right now that, like, at one point in this movie, John Goodman sticks a straw in a Twinkie and drinks the guts out. He also dips a chicken wing into beer. And that beer's gotta be Budweiser, right? Yeah. At least we know at the, like, mess hall, they're drinking Budweiser. And it was at the mess hall that he did this, so. Right. He's really good in this. He's such a good- He is. He's such a good friend. Yeah, he's doing great. This is pretty early in his career, too. Again, two years after Raising Arizona, he has not yet played Fred Flintstone. We should watch that. Oh, should we? <laughs> no. It has Halle maybe. Berry in it, I think. Or the sequel we does. Should, we should maybe watch it. It's Elizabeth Taylor's last role, too. Yeah. We could do a, a run of these and just get the last appearance <laughs> of famous Hollywood actresses. Stars. Didn't Orson Welles wrap up by doing the Transformers cartoon? Yeah, the voice of Optimus Prime. Anyway, he's a really good friend to Dorinda, and it made me very happy. Yeah. So every week we break down the romance in a movie into five plot points just to, you know, grapple with its meaning. And this one doesn't have that much meaning. Let's find out. Will, what's point number one? So point number one is all set around the day that Pete, played by Richard Dreyfus, has a near-death experience piloting his plane. You know, it's too bad we don't have a song. You know, I've been couples say, hey, honey, they're playing a song. I mean, really, oh, it's gosh, too bad. Oh, gosh, I can't believe you forgot. What are you talking about? You're saying we have a song? Yes, we have a song. You're kidding You me. big lug, you're going to break my heart. It actually starts off, you know how there's the stories of... Early in the days of movie theaters, there was that movie of a train driving towards the camera and audiences like freaked out. Holy cow, a train is going to hit us. Yes. This movie starts off kind of like that with a plane flying right at the camera. Yes. I did not think a plane was going to hit me, but it was like... 
it gives pulse you a, pounding it in that gives way. you a jump. Yeah. Like, I'm sure those people didn't genuinely think a plane was about to hit them. But you get that feeling. Right. So this is Pete. He's uh, an aerial firefighter. And he has just dipped into a reservoir to pick up more water to help put out the fire. And we realize pretty quickly that he's trying some daring stuff. And Holly Hunter playing Dorinda on the air traffic control is chastising him saying, you've got that evil Knievel sound in your voice. This movie seems to love Holly Hunter as much as I do because they give her the most dramatic first turnaround. Right. It's like, it's like when Indiana Jones turns around at the beginning of a movie. Right. She turns around and it's almost like there's a sign behind her that's just like, yes, it's Holly Hunter. And it's only like two years into her film career. Yeah, it's great. I love it. I love her so much. She is someone who really does just, like, bring me joy when she shows up on a movie screen. Yeah, I'm never sorry to see her. But so she is upset that Pete is making some daring evil Knievel moves, and he drops the water successfully and is turning around, announces that he has a small inconvenience, which is that he is out of fuel, but still manages to successfully glide down onto the runway and land safely. I was actually, because I knew there was a ghost element to it, and I was like, are they throwing in the ghost part this early? Because I'm not invested yet. I was very glad they did. That is actually what I thought was going to happen. I thought the whole movie was going to be Dreyfus as the ghost when this started happening, and then when it didn't happen, for like 45 minutes i was pretty surprised yeah it took a while to get to the ghost part too but then once they did there was audrey hepburn yeah i know very exciting so we see that holly hunter watching him glide to the ground has been so tense that she crushed a metal spoon like into a ball that was insane yeah it was like a like pokemon who is that alakazam yes yes who just carries the bench spoon yeah Alakazam. <laughs> does alakazam like as a genetic organism as a pocket monster okay have an appendage that looks like a spoon, or is he always carrying a bed spoon? See, this is the question. Is the giant sword dog in the new Pokemon sword carrying a sword, or is that a part of his mouth? Uh, you know more about Pokemon than I do. I'm asking you. I have no idea. I don't think they've addressed it. I think that they, like, summon a spoon psychically. I don't think From it where? grows out of his hand. The question is... Did they evolve before humans had invented spoons? Because then what was happening? I assume they would hold, like, a fish. I don't think a lot of thought goes into this, Will. <laughs> I need to know! Considering some of the Pokemon are just like, um, what if a panda, but dizzy? <laughs> what if a mouse, but electricity? What if a poly, but wag? Or just a straight-up ice cream cone wait what yep there's a pokemon i've been out of the loop on pokemon for like a couple of decades yeah there's a pokemon that's just an ice cream cone i think her name's like vanillapede or something weird anyway um holly hunter rushes out and that's when she has a hard time at first getting to pete because she is accosted by this guy ted who runs the wing in a prayer air delivery service and has brought her balloons and a large present in a box and is trying to sing to her it's a lot i would be very upset (laughs) If someone got me a singing telegram in any form. But, like, imagine this version of it where it's not just a singing telegram. It is a singing telegram who flies his own airplane to wherever the person is. And, like, that works great since Holly Hunter works at an airfield. But what about any other person? (laughs) Maybe it's specifically for pilot to tower worker romance I mean, he does mention after the time jump that that business failed. And it's pretty easy to imagine why. Oh my god. I don't think I ever fully grasped what was actually happening, to be honest. Yeah, so Dreyfus had hired him to do a dramatic birthday delivery for Holly Hunter. 
Chewbacca. He was very handsome. Yes, he is. Uh, looks so good. He looks like you want him in a raffle. Her description of him being handsome were always so funny. Yeah. So she is refusing the birthday delivery. She's not happy about it. Instead, she hops in a plane of her own to fly around and show off a different landing to Pete to be like, yeah, Pete, stop being a idiot just fly the plane the way you're supposed to yeah i didn't understand her plan that well because it wasn't a great landing i think it's mostly just like a way for her to let off steam yeah waste of fuel (laughs) yes (laughs) i don't think you should be allowed to just get in a plane mad but it's in the wake of this that john goodman gives dreyfus the speech about how like you're not a hero for taking chances you're a jerk right you're just a piece of shit right But Pete keeps insisting on trying to give Dory this present. They make their way to the mess hall and sit down. She refuses the gift a couple of times, so he just throws it off. And she turns to look and sees that it is, as she puts it, girl clothes. It's a dress that is just not pretty at all. We must discuss this dress. It's a terrible dress. I hated it so much. So the whole thing is like on an angle. This dress is a rhombus. And... (laughs) The dress is a parallelogram. It has one full-length sleeve, and then on the other side, it doesn't even, like, have a shoulder. So it's, like, a single-shoulder dress with an enormous long bow on the shoulder and a full-length sleeve. And then it also comes down, it is similarly at an angle across her legs to, again, make it a rhombus. Yeah, there's an asymmetrical skirt involved that's just... It's so bad. It is a truly terrible dress. But she's excited about it because... It shows that he sees her, like, not as just, like, a scrappy, plain person, but as a, like, beautiful woman. Right. Um, I wrote down that there's a title drop around here. I don't remember. Yes, because they toast. There's a toast. They get the finest Budweiser. They do, like, kind of a cute oh, right. bit where they're pretending to, like, be, like, Somaliers. Ah, yes. St. Louis, 1989. Yeah. I laughed. Yeah. He didn't, though. And then Dreyfus toasts to us, and Hunter says, always. That's right. I was like, I can't remember. I wrote this being like, I'll remember. Don't worry. I remembered the title drop. Oh, I I knew I could count on you. And this is the first time, after that is the first time we get her saying I love you and him not responding. He says I know. He does the Han Solo thing. Right. Speaking of Star Wars, real quick, I swear at one point when a plane was crashing, I heard Star Wars blaster sounds. I mean, it's possible. Like, it felt like the exact same sound effect and i didn't know if i was just crazy i was wondering if you had caught that too i did not the wikipedia page for this is pretty sparse i was looking for the sound editor um i'm not seeing any direct sound department overlap with star wars but that doesn't mean there isn't any and that doesn't mean that they didn't use a similar sound library yeah i was wondering if it was like a fun shout out or something because i know they're friends sure and of course john williams did the score for this movie as he did for most of Spielberg. Right. Um, around this time, speaking of sound and music, is when they start dancing. Dreyfus is like, oh, it would be nice if we had a song. You know, like how people have songs. And Dory is upset. She's like, we do have a song. And then the band starts playing Smoke Gets In Your Eyes, their song. And she realizes that he was teasing her and had set it up yeah. so the band would do that. He does a lot of that, like, pretending to not care style humor. And it really, right. it's so much that it gets in the way of me getting invested in the relationship. There's too much of it. It'd be fine if, like, there was one, and then we're shown, wait a minute, no, he does know it, and then we're with him caring about the relationship. But instead, he's constantly undercutting it. Which is, like, part of the issue with their relationship, where, like, he has kept it at kind of a remove, but it means that we are also kept at a remove. Right. He should have either gotten the birthday right 
and all this happened, or he, you know, says I love you and then play. There's just back to back, like he gets the birthday wrong. He doesn't say I love you. And then he plays the joke of pretending to not know that they have their own song all back to back. I'm just like, uh, does he actually like her or not? Right. And then there is like a full reaction to the dress where the whole room turns silent after she changes into the dress and she walks down the stairs. They're dancing. And then like every man in this USO hall is like, I must dance with Holly Hunter. And like, I understand the impulse, but it's a very strange sequence. She insists that people wash their greasy hands first. And I'm like, you maybe should have done that before you started eating chicken too, guys. So they go out to wash their hands at the sink and Dreyfus is there with towels on all of his arms being like, all right, guys, come on. It's a very strange sequence. It's so weird. It almost feels like the men are going to slam on the table and go, Awooga! As their eyes pop out of their heads and their tongues wag like in an old cartoon. Yeah, it's weird. It's just so divorced from reality. Anyway, I think that takes us to point two. Yeah, this is the same night, I think. They're at her place, laying in bed, lounging, and they get into a serious discussion because Holly Hunter, Dorinda, is tired of Pete's bullshit, essentially. Yeah, so she wants him to stop being an air firefighter and instead take this job that Al, John Goodman, told them about where he would be an instructor at a training school for aerial firefighters at Flat Rock in Colorado. Right, so a new stable job. He wouldn't be in a place where he can pull idiotic maneuvers all the time. He would just teach others to pull these idiotic maneuvers. And she starts off by saying like, you know what? I want to start flying missions. I'm pretty close to the number of required hours, so I want to start doing that. And he tells her, absolutely not. Right, he's like, you're a bad pilot. I don't think you should do this. And we do have some evidence that she's not a great pilot. Right. And then she gives him basically an ultimatum of either you take this job and we stay together or we break up because I can't watch you put yourself at risk all the time. She's like, you're going to die soon and I don't want to be around for that. Basically, like, I don't want to be at your funeral in the next year. She doesn't want to be Gina from Porco Rosso, who has all these pilot husbands that are always dying. Right. And he is laughing it off still, not taking it too seriously. But then eventually he does realize she's right and says, will you stay with me if I take that job? And they agree to move. But then he gets the call. It's worth noting before that, that, Along the way in the conversation, she's saying like, yeah, I'll break up with you. And like, I've got too many things to do and too many other men to do them with. And he's saying, you'll never be with another man. You're never going to get over me. And she has this whole speech about how awful it is being grounded while he does these terrible things. And she says, I love you, Pete, but I'm not enjoying it. And I think that's significant because we see how hard this is for her. But this is also laying the groundwork for his confidence that like, yeah, you're never going to get over me, which manifests frankly, cruelly after his death. Right. That is important to point out. But I was impressed that he did eventually come to see her side of the argument and agree because that's the first sign that he really does care about her. Right. And the problem is that we haven't seen these pieces beforehand that we kind of need. It feels very sudden that he changes his mind on it. Right. But then he gets, you know, the phone call. He's called into action. They actually do a good job of making me agree that he does need to do this. Like, right. they lay a very solid foundation of he's actually in a position where he can't say no to this, and it is his last one. But then it is, of course, his last one, because this is a ghost movie, so he does have to die at some point. It's an incredible sequence, though. So he's flying with John Goodman, 
and John Goodman was flying too low and his engine caught fire. And so what, what Pete, Richard Dreyfus does is he takes this incredible dive down over Goodman's plane, empties his water tank over Goodman to put out the fire on the engine so Goodman can land. But Pete is in too steep of a dive, so he's not able to pull out of it. Oh, and then he explodes in a ball of fire. Yeah, apparently the fire sets off his gas tank, but his plane goes up in flames. It's wild. And like I said, this is a movie that makes fire really scary. It does. It's not just for effect. And I do think part of that is one of the stronger elements in the script is when John Goodman is berating his students and he's talking about how a forest fire is scarier than normal fire because of all the heat and the smoke and all of that. And so then I feel like you become aware of the heat of these fires and how intense it is. Yeah, they do a good job making you realize like, These people are feeling the heat in the planes. Right. I do want to shout out before we move on. One of my favorite moments in the movie was when Holly Hunter rode a bicycle out to the airstrip and pulled out in front of Pete's plane before he could take off to then climb up the plane and tell him again that she loved him. It's a great moment. When she shouts, kiss me and fly. It's awesome. Yeah. And then he actually does say, I love you back, but he does it where she can't hear him. Because he's a dummy. Yeah, he's a dummy. So this brings us to point three. Pete is dead. Audrey Hepburn has told him that he has to go back and train Ted to be a pilot. Right. Basically, she says that there was this moment in your past where you felt like you didn't know what you were doing, and then suddenly you had this clarity. That's inspiration. You need to give it to someone else. You need to pass it on. And because the reason he was a good pilot is because someone was doing this to him, too, in his lifetime. So it's only been like one minute for him but then he gets back to earth and it's been six months and ted is training with john goodman whose character's name i do not remember al al to be a pilot and it's worth noting again ted is the guy he was the singing telegram airplane service right and ted had also smiled very meaningfully at holly hunter during the dance and kept trying to go over to dance with her but didn't have the confidence and so other people kept cutting in front of him so every man but ted danced with holly hunter that night so weird including john goodman in a very cute dance yes he's got some moves yeah anyway point three well i'll tell you there little missy you're mighty pretty when you're angry Uh uh-huh So you're doing precious? Just that one. So Pete decides slash is sent to Ted as his inspiration mentor. And Ted has already had another awkward interaction with this woman, Rachel, in the hangar. Rachel helps land the planes and she's really into Ted. And he's just like the most awkward person on the planet. So then at a bar, Pete's like, hey, Ted, you know, this girl keeps looking at you. Tell her she's why you're here. Offer to dance with her. And... Ted's like, uh, dance? And Rachel's like, yeah, let's dance. And Ted's like, no, I'm bad at dancing. She's like, we can talk. And Ted goes, I'm bad at talking. And then he gives her this whole speech about like, you know, Rachel, do you ever just see a girl and know she's the one? And Rachel's like, yeah, sure, whatever, man, you're a hottie. And then he gets to the end of his speech and it's clear that he's talking about another woman. Yeah, it's really uncomfortable. It's truly horrible because Rachel seems nice and fun. Yeah, she seems great. Future CSI actress Marge Helgenberger. Yes, and it's worth noting that Brad Johnson, the actor who plays Ted, did play a love interest for her for a little bit on CSI. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. This is only his second screen appearance. He was in one other movie earlier that year called Nom Angels about a biker gang. He's mostly made TV movies and direct-to-video movies since then, including three of the Left Behind movies. Oh, boy. So 
Anyway, Ted is still, for some reason, obsessed with a woman he didn't even dance with. Right, he says he's just been, like, looking for this woman that he met a year ago. Oh, I guess we have to see him do poorly at his flying first. Well, part of it is, again, Pete's fault. Because Pete is seeing this afterlife thing where he can't speak directly to people, but he can say things and make them think they are their own thoughts. So he first figures this out walking behind a person and he says, you know, you're kind of funny looking. And the guy looks in a mirror and then looks upset. So Pete early on is using this to pull pranks where, for example, he got Al to wipe grease all over his face. But he did that in real life too. Right. But then Ted is doing an early practice flight in the flying school and Pete redirects him so that he won't let out the water over the practice fire. Instead, he'll dump a bunch of water over John Goodman, who is slurping Twinkie guts. Because Pete thinks that is funny, even though it's bad for Ted. Right. Pete's an asshole. Yes. He is being a jerk. So then another time they're flying and Rachel is in charge of the like little like landing craft that tells people where to land their planes. But it is, I don't even know. It's like BB-8 on LSD, where it's just running around all the time. Yeah, it should not be able to just go. It's a car. It's a car. Like, you have to push a, a pedal or something. It drives it. It's insane. I was so confused. So anyway, Pete is landing a plane one time, and that thing is going haywire, and Pete's like, well, I'm just going to follow the thing. And so he drives straight off the runway over some turf and crashes into Holly Hunter's front porch. Right, because apparently she just lives on the runway now. Well, she had been, I think in california doing air traffic control but al met up with her when he was out recruiting and insisted on bringing her back with him he's like i miss him too but we've got to move on with our lives come with me and we can help each other right it's really sweet because he sees yeah al's a good friend he sees that she's just stuck and can't get her mind off of him and he's sad too so he's basically like why don't you just come work at the school and you and i can you know continue being friends and get through this together i'm just like oh so cute. But Pete comes in kind of to apologize, but kind of also because he is convinced like, this is the person that I have been chasing for a year and I have found her again. And dang it, Dory, we must love each other. Yeah. So Al shows up to yell at Ted at this time, but he can see he's basically like, oh, Ted's going to fail out. And then he sees that there's a bit of chemistry between the two of them. And this is the first person that Dory's been interested in since Pete died. Right. So he's like, oh, no, Ted's sticking around. He's a great guy. You're both so great. Wink, wink, wink. Time to go. And then he leaves. And Al keeps trying to set them up together. He's like, yeah, I need I need you to go in town to get some supplies for the school. And she's like, sure. And then Al goes, you'll need help carrying them. I'll send Ted with you. Oh, yeah. So on the way, this is where you get the uh, school bus scene. Right. Where they're driving behind the school bus and the school bus starts swerving all over the road. And they don't know what's going on. So they kind of drive up in front and try and block it. But eventually the bus pulls over and it turns out the bus driver's having a heart attack. And he stumbles out and... And Ted gives him CPR and is able to save his life. But there is this moment where you just see Ted giving the guy CPR, looking down at the driver's face. And then the shot reverses and you see the driver standing behind Ted opposite Richard Dreyfus. And it's a pretty great just visual switch. Right. And Pete says, you know, good job stopping the bus before you died, essentially, and saving the kids. It's one of the best moments that Pete gets in the movie when he just reaches out to this other person with compassion. Right. But eventually Ted actually manages to successfully use CPR to bring him back while also managing the kids and keeping them calm. And I'm kind of just like, Dorinda, what are you doing here, bud? (laughs) Yeah, Ted's clearly the best guy. Yeah, so Ted has saved a human life while maintaining calm among a school bus full of children watching a man die. And I was just Pretty like, incredible. 
All right, so we're setting up. Ted is a good guy. Got it. We're on Ted's side. Before this point, when they were driving along, Dorinda and Ted were performing John Wayne impressions and making fun of each other's, which is kind of fun and is based on something the actors were just doing on set and Spielberg was like, fine, it's in the movie. And so after this, I think they agree to have a date. Which is point four. Uh, the start of point four is incredible when Truly Dorinda buys fried chicken, but then spills mashed potatoes on the table and covers herself she, in like, flour. She like splashes sauce on the wall. It like puts sauce. It's so funny. So she tries to make it look like she spent all day slaving over this meal. And then when he shows up, she's just like, oh, me, I've just been working in the kitchen. Ha ha ha. Let me go clean myself up. And it's pretty great. It's a great scene. And so they have like kind of a fun date, but it is one where she's clearly talking about Pete a lot. She's laughing through these stories about ridiculous things that Pete did. Uh, She says the line at one point, he's using fork and knife on the chicken wing. And she's like, anything that flies is good to pick up, even in a fancy restaurant. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, oh, honey, I don't know what fancy restaurants you've been to. No, I think it's great. She's so fun. And he's clearly having a good time, but also, like, the Pete of it all is a little awkward. Right. So he's not feeling too great. And so then he's just like, let's dance. I never got to dance with you that night. So they start to dance. Pete is trying to get him to play smoke gets in your eyes because he knows it'll make her sad right because even in the midst of all this date pete is like kind of whispering towards her you know you'll never really get over me which is a douchebag thing oh it's awful to watch it's horrible and so pete is trying to get him to stop on on their song to basically to upset her right and ted doesn't so they have a really nice dance they kiss and then the song comes on and she gets upset and ted leaves right and this is when she dances to the song and pete tries to dance with her and it's worth noting she puts on the dress yeah and it is a really lovely sequence it is pete is trying to figure out how he can dance with her because he can't touch her and so he's trying to figure out how to make this work and there is an uncertainty to his actions there that you almost never see with him at any other time that it's like the one time you see proper vulnerability from him Yeah, but then Hap calls him and chastises him. Right, she's basically like, you already lived your life. Stop getting in the way of other people being able to live their lives. Right. I don't know this for a fact, but I suspect that Hap is named for Hap Arnold, who was the commander of the Air Force during World War II. That makes sense. There's no reason for her to be named Hap. But I think this brings us to point five. Yeah, so Dory and Ted's relationship is a little unclear, but she clearly likes him. And there's a really bad fire, bad enough that they are calling in all of these students, which is the thing that Goodman had warned them could possibly happen. And she hears that there's this particularly dangerous flight that Ted is planning to do, in part with the confidence in his flying that he has gotten from flying with Pete's help. And Dory is too upset by the idea of having another man that she cares for die on a daredevil mission. And so she grabs a plane and goes to do it herself. Love we hold back is the only pain that follows us here. 
So she is in the pilot seat and eventually takes the headset off because people are trying to be like, come back, you can't do this. And this is clearly very hard. It's hard emotionally. It's hard physically with the heat. You can see the sweat running down her face. But for the first time, she's the one piloting a plane with Pete in there with her, guiding her. And he is helping her put out the fire and telling her about the good life and love that she will have going forward. It's the point where Pete is putting what he wants aside mm-hmm. and saying, like, I am going to help you do what you want and live a life that you can enjoy. Right. And he says, the only thing I regret is not telling you I love you in real life because the love we hold back is the only pain that follows us here, which I thought was a really nice line. Yeah. It's a really nice idea. He had had this conversation with Hap about, like, you didn't tell me it was going to be so hard to see these people. Right. And eventually she has to do an emergency water landing and her plane is sinking and she basically is like, all right, time to go. Right. She is dying, which I imagine is why she can suddenly see Pete. Right. And then Pete convinces her to make it and swim and she gets to shore and she lives. And Ted puts his arm around her as they're walking back to the base. Yeah. And then, and then Pete fades away. Pete, Pete fades, fades away. away. Pete moves on. All right, Will, after watching this movie, this is, I think, going to be fairly difficult to discuss because clearly we've shown some uh, uncertainty about our feelings towards this movie. Do you find the romance of Always believable? It's not a zero. I think that Pete seems like too much of a jerk for Dory to put up with it as much as she does. Yeah, he's not giving any redeeming qualities until the last scene, essentially. I think this is like a four for me. Yeah, it's not high. It's pretty low. Because, like, bad relationships do exist. Right. But I have a hard time seeing Dory put up with as much crap as she does from Pete. The movie's also trying to make us think that this is a good relationship. Right, which is part of the And problem. so that's why it's not believable. We're supposed to think that the joking is fun, but it's actually just mean. Right, so I agree. I think it's a four also. Yeah. Um. Do you think that Pete, Dory, or Ted is dateable? Ted and Dory, yes. Pete, no. Agreed. Yeah, Pete's a jerk. Ted is, like, designed in a lab to be the perfect man. Yeah. Even if he's not an amazing pilot. And Dory is is great and also Holly Hunter. Yeah, Dory's Holly Hunter. Do you think Dory and Ted would stay together? Maybe. It's hard to know. They've just begun. I think they will certainly date for a while, at least. Yeah, I agree. If you had to pick one person to date, who would you choose? I mean, the strong answer is probably Al, played by John Goodman, who's just a real good friend, but genuinely... His eating habits disturb me. I was thinking Rachel would be fun. Yes. She's like... That's actually the correct answer. A cool mechanic who knows how to have fun and tries to get what she wants. Yeah, she puts herself out there. She's great. Yeah, Rachel's definitely the right answer. All right. So, a lot of the movies we cover have been turned into stage musicals. Do you think always should be put on Broadway? I kind of think yes. Interesting. You'd have to like rework it to make Pete less of a dick. But I think this idea works really well as a stage musical where you have the idea of this character who can exert subtle influence, but isn't quite a part of things. I think it lends itself well to the heightened emotion of a musical to expressing things in song. If you figure out a way to do the airplanes, which you could do in part with like models or just like levels so you have people like on scaffolding or stuff like that 
I think it could be a pretty good musical. I think so. You would have to make the actual fire part of it take a bigger back seat and I think focus on the romance more. Yes. And I think that's something that the movie might have benefited from as well. So I think you've convinced me. I can see it. Yeah, I think Always would be a great musical. All right. I think that about does it for Always, though. Speaking of musicals, Uh next week we are going to be tackling one of the most infamous film musicals of all time, the 1967 adaptation of Dr. Doolittle starring Rex Harrison, Anthony Newley, and Samantha Egger. And also a kid who played Tommy Stubbins. I don't even want to talk about it more than we did. We already recorded the episode. So until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod. And you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular help new people to find the show. All right, Will. What's the best piece of dating advice you got from the film Always? I think the most important thing that I learned is that even if you do something really horrible as a first impression, you can maybe salvage it if you're friendly enough. Hmm. Like crashing into somebody's house. Right. I was thinking, if you see someone and you think they're hot, only pine after them for over a year, ignoring every other person in front of you, and maybe, eventually, you could date them. This is terrible advice. (laughs) Yeah, but it works for Ted. It's very high school advice. (laughs) Hey, I mean, it's what the movie told me works. All right. There you go. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! I tell you now they don't mean